We're in 1 Corinthians. If this is your first time with us, like we're deep in 1 Corinthians and I wanna help you catch up. We're in the middle of what feels like a list. It feels like Paul, the writer of 1 Corinthians, has a, a laundry list of things that he's going through. And yet this is a back and forth between this church and Corinthian around questions and what it looks like. Paul is reframing each and everything. He's reframing how they're doing life and how they're experiencing in it. And so I'm glad you're here, whether this is your first time or you've been with us for a while. I want to pray for you, and I desperately want you to pray for me that we would listen and have the word of God speak over us today, right? Father, we need you. We need you at work in us right now. Help, help push back all the polish, all the bad habits we have about church. Help us to push back all the pretense and everything that we would just like to project some image to, to other people or, or even to you, God. Help us to hear the word of God fresh today and do what only you can do, which is work on our hearts and our souls. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so here's how we're going to do this. I, I, I want us to look at this text. I want us to, to find the, the key phrase, the meaning, identify the main thing that's happening in this text. Uh, and then I, I want us to see these illustrations that Paul uses. He uses two illustrations to help us understand his main thing. And then we'll just finish our day trying to bring this into daily life for us. That's kind of how we'll, we'll walk this out. Those are the turns for us today. So what's the main thing? Read with me. We're here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I can't encourage you enough to actually have a Bible, whether it's digitally or otherwise. If you need one, we have them here for you. But like, I want you to see that this isn't just me making things up. It isn't any of us preachers making this up. It's actually coming from the very word of God. And you can see it yourself right here. Verse 17, chapter 7, verse 17 says, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him, into which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. That last line, this is my rule in all the churches, that, that's the clue, right? That's, that's the clue. Here's something important that Paul is giving to all of these churches. Here's how he's saying it. This isn't just unique to Corinth. This isn't unique to them. Uh, this is the rule that he's giving in all the churches, that each person, each one, not one of you, not one of them is exempt. No one is exempt. Paul, Paul is drilling into something for everyone. He goes on and he says, each one, each person lead the life. Now pause right there. Lead the life. What is that looking like? There's a, there's a life that you're called to, a call to action. It's a call to walk. Lead the life. Here's a verb for you. Lead the life that the Lord has assigned. The places and the spaces, the circumstances and the challenges given us that are given you, that are placed before you, that are assigned to you, that are right there. And yet, maybe we need to kind of just have this as a stake in the ground. When we read something like assigned, and, and a lot of us are going like, this is not the assignment I would like. Maybe we need to be reminded afresh. Maybe we need to stick this stake in the ground that God is not playing games with your life. 
He's not playing games with your life. And yet it tells us this clear. Lead the life the Lord has assigned to which he has called you. Which means, like, where you're at, what is going on is no accident, but it's loaded with purpose and meaning. It's loaded with those things. It's loaded with opportunities. And what's so easy to forget, it's loaded with the love and grace of God. See, verse 17 is, is this this cheat code for us to understand the, the chapters right before and what's coming up right after us because it, it's stuck in the middle where Paul has been going through this conversation around sex, marriage, and divorce. He, and this feels like a bit of a scenic turnout. Like if you were on a road trip, it feels a bit like a scenic turnout right here. And yet it has everything to do with the road trip Paul is taking him on because he's coming right back after this to singleness, to widows, to life. You see, this isn't a detour. Man, this is a moment to catch all the views. He's giving us something right here. And here's the meaning. Here's, well, here's that main thing, that the Lord God, wise, true, just, all-knowing and perfect in love has invited you and me, each and every one of us, to live out his purpose and identity, the one that he has called you to. To live out that life that he's given you. And you might be thinking, like, when I, I started sitting in this, I was like, wait, the, the main thing can't be the very first verse. It can't be this straightforward. It can't be this easy. It, it can't be right there. And yet, it, Paul, like, if that's you, and you're like, the main thing came up pretty quickly, Chad, in this right here. Uh, hold on, because Paul is going to give two illustrations that are not easy. They're not easy. He goes circumcision and slavery. And you're like, thanks, Paul. Thanks a ton for that. Right here. Thanks a ton for stepping out there. And let's just be honest. Like, I, I, Paul goes to, circumc- goes to circumcision as like his go-to illustration, not just here, but again and again and again. You're like, Paul, find another illustration. I mean, anything, anything. I would be okay with that. As a a pastor, as a preacher, I'd be like, I'm okay with another illustration right here. And this week, I was sitting in it going like, man, how can I kind of weasel out of going down this? And yet, circumcision is so central to the covenant of God. All the way back to Genesis 17, this covenant of God that was given was a picture packed with meaning and very personal. And so here we go. Like dive into these illustrations with me. In verse 18, it says this. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let them not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain 
in the condition in which he was called. So he's using this, and again, he's speaking to both of these issues as illustrations, right? He's not unpacking all the meaning right here in circumcision. But there is this lightning bolt that comes up in verse 19 in which he says to these people who come out largely of a, a Jewish background, he says, circumcision or uncircumcision means nothing, and that is shocking. It's not shocking to us. Like, we, we don't read it the exact same way. But to these people, that is shocking language. This goes back to Genesis 17. This goes all the way back to Abraham. Remember, we talked about him last week. This goes back to that. And it is so central, such a core, such an intimate piece of acknowledging that I'm following after And then, as if Paul hasn't said enough and hasn't jarred them enough, he goes on and raises the stakes. He says, the only thing that matters is keeping the commandments of God, to which the original readers would have raised their hand and said, I thought that's what we were doing in doing this. This was required behavior. This is what we were doing. I, I thought we were supposed to do this. How am I not keeping the commandments? Paul is using circumcision and uncircumcision to reframe all the conversations. Pick it up with me. He goes on because he doesn't stop there, right? There's not a lot of explanation here, but he doesn't stop there. And while you're at it, put a pin in verse 20. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called because we'll come back to it. And he uses that language again, and it's only, it's only harder to swallow then. It's, it's even more difficult to swallow then. Here's 21. Were you a bondservant when called? A bondservant, like a slave. Were you a slave in this? But more importantly, like this is a language to a people in a time in which slavery was everywhere. It was normal. It doesn't mean it was okay, but it was it was all over the place. It was part of normal society. In fact, to the point where people would find themselves financially in trouble and would willingly sell themselves into slavery to pay those debts. This is the context in which he's writing this in here. And if we we start to say like, wait a second, I don't like how this sounds. I don't like how this smells. Listen, Paul will unpack this later on in Philemon is speaking directly to the merits. This is not going to the merits this is simply using it as an illustration, common language, shared, shared metaphor for everyone, shared experience and, and what the culture has for us. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom and avail yourself of the opportunity, but I'm sorry, but if you can gain your freedom avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord is a bondservant, is a freed man, as a bondservant, is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there 
let him remain with God. Let's start with those words right there. Like, like how, is this, how is he saying, if you're in slavery, just be okay with that and hang out with it? Well, that's not the entire story. That's not everything he's saying. He's painting a picture and he's using it as an illustration. And we know this because he even throws in that phrase. If you have the opportunity to avail yourself of freedom, do that. Do that. Step into it because it's Paul who is a human being writing to human beings. But this isn't specifically about is slavery okay, not okay? Are the conditions acceptable, not acceptable? This is an illustration about something so much more. Your circumstances, what's happening in your life. This is, Paul's making a larger point. He's making a, a statement right here because Paul lives in this 4K, crystal clear, like immersive reality that you were bought with a price. If you were in Christ, you were bought with a price, verse 23. And the words of scripture speak an altogether bigger purpose and meaning to your life and to mine. Let me give you a couple of examples from Scripture. Jesus refines things. Jesus himself goes through refining, redefining, and, and explaining things. In Matthew chapter 12, he says, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Who is my family in this? It, it, he's not disrespecting his mother. He's speaking that there's something bigger going on all around us. Paul, this same Paul who writes this letter to the Corinthians, is going to reframe everything. In fact, to the church in Philippi, he has these words, but whatever gain, whatever gain I had, all the things that I could hang my hat on, all the plaques, everything that I have had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Here's a so reframing things right here. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. You see, our passage tucked in between discussions around sex, around marriage and divorce, singleness and widows. And that's just to name a few because he's, he's going to continue on naming certain things. Tucked in between all of that, Paul throws in some illustrations, circumcision and slavery, it, just for good measure, right? Or to help us see the most basic reality of life in Christ, that Jesus has changed everything. Everything. Even the most basic parts, because here in a couple chapters, he's just gonna keep, he's just gonna keep going into every aspect of life. And by the end of chapter 10, in 1 Corinthians, by the end of chapter 10, Paul has this to say, verse 31. So, whether you eat or drink, that's all of us, right? It, we're not talking marital status anymore. We're not talking uh, about where we are in terms of bond, servant, slave. It's like whatever you are doing, whether you are eating or drinking, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 
again, friends, this isn't some weird detour that Paul's taking us on into like pet issues that he has. This is Paul like trying to help us see reality. It's Paul speaking to us. And so let's make this last turn into what does this have to do? What do these words, this text, our passage this morning, around these illustrations, what does it have to do with us today? And one of the clues in, in these verses that helps us to understand it is to recognize that eight times in this little passage uh, comes out call or calling. The idea of call and calling. And, and, and here's how he's using it. He's using it as an invitation. Remember, remember when you were called? Remember when you heard the call of God? Remember the calling on your life, this invitation given to you by God? Remember that. The call of God to follow him, to trust and to believe, to recognize that, that he is bringing you through circumstances, but to something so much better. It's referring to the act of God inviting you into a new way of living and acting, a new identity, a new purpose. I'm, a, I'm an only child. I'm an only child. And, and yet uh, the call of God is to walk with brothers and sisters in the family of God. We, we have this invitation from God to a new way of living. And he's going to return to this idea again and again. By the time he writes the second letter to Corinthians, by the time he gets it, he's zeroing in on this main thing. And he says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone. Who is my, my mother? Who are my brothers? And the new has come. Everything that I counted, everything that I counted as as blessing is actually rubbishing compared to knowing Jesus. Why? Because I'm a new creation. These words aren't throwaway lines. They aren't just there as colorful metaphors to help us kind of get our, our, our heads going. These are a reordering of priorities, of values, and light of what God has done, on what God is doing in your life and what God promises to do. It's a reordering, but it's also, these words are an invitation. They're an invitation for us to hear what God is doing, an invitation to a deeper understanding of the goodness of God, a deeper uh, understanding of his great love, of his calling on your life. These words right here in 1 Corinthians 7 are an invitation. It's a reminder from Paul. Remember the calling on your life when you heard God. Remember that. Respond to that. Live differently because of it. And so I want to spend the last few minutes that I have, I want to spend the last few minutes taking this from from a letter to a people in this town of Corinth and press it right here to a people in this town of Yukon. And I want us to do that around three words that are so central to us hearing and receiving this call. 
faith, hope, and love. And faith is one of those things. Faith is, is this, like, how, how do I believe in something I can't see? We have faith, and there are all sorts of illustrations. Some are better than others that people give around this. But we, we have faith. I know that this has been said, but do I actually believe that this is true? Do I actually live this out? I, I know I've heard these. I've heard these stories. I've read. I've heard about this Jesus and what he's done. But, like, faith. The calling of God requires faith in our life. And if we were to be honest, faith has a lot to do with, like, I want to want God more than anything else. It's just an honest, an honest assessment. Like, I'm not always there, but I want to want God more than anything else. In faith, there's, there's movement. In faith, there's development. Faith, faith requires certain things. It doesn't require us to clean up our act, but it does require movement, right? It requires a leap. Requires saying, like, I have questions. I have all sorts of questions. I would like all sorts of answers, and yet I don't have all of them, but I have enough to believe. That's what every page of Scripture gives us. That's why we we have all of these. And to neglect it is to miss all that God has given us, that we would have faith, not answers to every single question, but that it help us to have faith. And then faith is ultimately this gift that we have in it. But faith leads us to movement. It leads us to development. In, in, in fact, the same Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. He says these words in, in chapter 4. He says, walk because of what God has done. That's what he spent the first three chapters on. Because of what God has done, walk now in a manner worthy of what? The calling of God to which you have been called. Walk. It isn't something that you did, but rather it's something you're doing. It isn't something you earned. See, faith, faith soars past our circumstances. Faith sees past the visible not as some superhero, but it, it sees that, no, like I see my circumstances, but I know God's not playing games with my life. Faith hears the voice of God on the dark moments and the, in the moments that are scary or hard. It say, you have my love. Faith hears it. Faith responds and remembers, I don't have to earn this. Faith is, moves in my heart to say, I, I don't have to earn this. I, I'm not one that can earn God's love. And yet so often we struggle with faith. Faith stirs our emotions to actually respond to God. But faith doesn't live alone, does it? Faith, faith is knit together with hope. And hope's one of those, those words that all of us know, all of us use, all of us have in there, all of us acknowledge is there, and yet so often we struggle with. We live in a world that just throws out hope all the time, but we treat hope like it's winning the, the Powerball lottery or something. Man, I sure wish I had that. I sure hope I win. I sure hope this plays out in my life. And yet the Bible speaks of hope entirely differently. The Bible uses hope in terms of certainty. You can place your hope in this one. 
and place your hope in this one. Not because you have all the answers, but because you have faith. Not because you're blind to evidence or reason. No, with evidence and reason, there's no shortage of that. But it's not going to answer every question that you have. We have hope. Jesus tells a story that is related to hope. He puts this in, in a picture for us. And Jesus tells these stories. They're called parables. And they're really important for us. They're, they're so important. Again, they're, they're these stories to help us understand the heart of the Father and what Jesus is doing. And so in Matthew 22, he tells a story about this, this feast that gets thrown this feast, and it talks about this king. And again, if you're reading Matthew and you get to 22, you're like, how did Jesus get to this right here? It seems like a, a scenic turnout. Jesus tells a story about a banquet that a king throws and a feast. And he sends out his servants to tell everyone and say, come, come to the banquet. Come to the banquet. Be here. And here's how this relates back to hope. Because so many of us are sitting there going, I sure wish there was a banquet one day. Sure wish that I could believe this God. I sure wish in the midst of my circumstances and my striving, I sure wish that this is here. And yet the Bible speaks of this with certainty. Jesus says there is a banquet, and he says you can put your hope in it, and that the king himself is inviting you. He's flinging the doors open. And yet so many of us are sitting outside saying, I hear the music, I hear the people, I sure hope it's true. And we can name faith and we can name hope, but the question that is right before us that is pressing on us is, are those in your life? Are you placing your faith in Jesus? Are you placing your hope in Jesus? And that's connected, right? It's connected to love. And all of these work together in our life. Do our, they, they, they actually press on the, the real beating question of our heart. Uh, it's like, do you, do you believe that your circumstances, do you believe that you're limping, that you're, that you're falling down, that you're sin, do you believe that all of those things are overcome by the love of God? Circumcised or uncircumcised, slave or free, single or married, widow, divorced. God is calling you to something more. Our text, our text today speaks something of enormous importance to your life and to mine. It speaks a better word of God calling us to a new and deeper relationship of actually walking with him in faith, hope, and love. And love's one of those things, right? It's easy to say, oh, yes, God, I love you. Yes, I love you. And the question that I would turn around on you is, are you able to be loved by God? to receive and to walk in the love of God, which actually changes everything. It's a risky thing. And Jesus, in, in one of those other stories, one of those other parables, tells a story of a father and a son. 
And he tells this story. It's really important for us right here. It's, un- it's hard to understand the love of God apart from these things, but it doesn't live in isolation, right? And he tells this story of a father and a son. And the son jacks up his life. The son makes a mess of everything. The son just is like, hey, I'll take everything that you have to give me, and I will squander it. That wasn't his plan, but that, that's what happens. He brings shame on his family. Not just himself, he brings it on his family. He brings shame on his father. He brings shame on his father. And Jesus tells the story, maybe you're familiar with it, but this guy makes such a mess of his life that he ends up at the bottom, not just of society. He ends up at the pit feeding on pig slop. And then this guy, let's be honest, he does something really brave. He's a mess, right? But he does something really brave. He's like, at some point, he says, I'm going home. I'm going home. I don't even know what the... I'm going home. He does his best to try to figure out how to explain this to his dad. He doesn't even know if he's going home as a servant or anything, or if they're just going to turn him away and say, keep walking. But he's, he's got his speech prepared to go home and say, I'm sorry, I'll do whatever, but please help me. And, and here's the scandal of the story. Because so many of us right here would say, oh, yeah, I love God. I love God. But are you walking in the love of God? Because here's the scandal in the story. The father sees him from far off. He pulls up his robes, and he leaves off the porch to go running after the son. To go running after the son. And the son's like, okay, here we go. Moment of truth. This is my time. I've got to do it. I've got all the words. Let's get this out. And the dad, you can just almost see him like slaps that out of his hands, out of his hands. It says, no, no, no. Start the music. Fire up the smoker. We have the biggest party, the biggest banquet to throw of all. Bring the best robes. The old man doesn't even let the words come out. He simply bring, like, flings his arms around him. And he pours out his love. And you're like, ah, I know that story. I know where it is. I've heard that a million times. I've read books on it. I could tell you all sorts of things. And we should, we should revisit it from time to time for those very reasons because we're so familiar with it that we miss all those things. So let me just take a second to reframe that. Imagine that Jesus came in here this morning. And he knows the condition of your life, of your heart, of where you're at. He knows that you got into it with your wife this week. He knows that you have messed up again. He knows that all of those habits, those attitudes, those things that you've been trying to kick, you're still a mess. He knows where you limp. He knows your shame. But if Jesus were to come in this room and push past all of our obstacles, so many of us, myself included, would be like, okay, time to sit up straight, time to sit up. What am I going to say to Jesus right here? And I happen to think that Jesus is coming in, not like some bully basketball coach, but he's coming in, not with his hands on his hips, ready to give us a lecture, but I think that Jesus would come in and he would take the chair right in front of you and he would turn it around. And he would sit down right with you. 
knee to knee, nose to nose. He would sit down right with you. He'd say, you know I love you. You know I love you. Through all of it, through every bit of it, you know I love you. In my own heart, I think you just strip away all that stuff you think you know, all that stuff, you, all those facts, all those, those places. Do you know I love you? Then why are you so paralyzed by the lie that you can earn my love? I think if you were sitting here with us today and you walked in right now, you'd say, why are you so paralyzed by thinking you can earn my love? That's why we're talking about circumcision. None of it matters. All the stuff that you could do to prove yourself spiritual, it doesn't matter. I think that God would come right here to say, do you still think that your circumstances rule over you? Do you still think that where you find yourself is your slave master. Just why we're talking about slavery. And I think that Jesus wouldn't just get up and walk away. He'd fling his arms around you. And he would say, come into the field. Come into the feast. So friends, there's so much work to do around what it looks like to walk with Jesus. I'm a mess, limping every day. There's so much work for us to to sit and understand the love of God. The question I have for you is can you respond To this, God saying, come, live the life I've called you to. Live the life that I have for you and see what I'm going to do in you and through you.